Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Today's guest, Katie Hurd, is the Program Director of Self-Defense at the Combat Sports Academy in Northern California. She's also a Blower Tactical Systems Mobile Training Team member, a member of the Krav Maga Alliance Training Team. She's a Krav Maga Black Belt, the 2017 Krav Maga Alliance Instructor of the Year, and she's the former Muay Thai National Champion and was a competitor on the 2009 Team USA at the International Federation of Muay Thai Associations World Championships. So she is a total badass, and she is also the mommy to an amazing five-year-old. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to chat with you today. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. (laughs) We've been trying so hard, I know. We've had some challenges, but we shall overcome. <laughs> well, I would like to get started with some, some sort of simple questions to sort of get us in the groove and then jump into the nitty gritty after that. So are you ready for those? Great. Yeah, sounds great. Okay. What is your favorite thing to do with your son? You know, probably anything in the water or having to do with music. Like he's he's really into swimming. That's his happy place. So just, I'm so happy that summertime is here. I think just hanging out in the pool with him and absorbing some of that joy or like he loves music. So, you know, dance party with the mom, like I'm still, he's five. So I'm still cool. And I'm trying to soak that up before that changes. So that I'd I'd have to pick those two things for my favorite. That sounds like a ton of fun. Both of them do. And you're right. I mean, summertime really makes getting in the water a much simpler thing. Do you have access to a pool where you live? So usually we do. We live in a in a townhouse complex and we have a community pool due to everything being shut down with COVID-19. We haven't had access to it. I'm really hopeful that here I'm so I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area and there's some discussion about gyms being able to reopen in a limited capacity in the particular region that I am in, in the Bay Area. And um, with that would be uh, public swimming pools as well. So fingers crossed that in the next week or so, you know, ominous ellipses or so, (laughs) we'll be able to to hop in. Um, So not yet, but hopefully soon. Oh, that's, that's great. That'll be definitely something to look forward to then. Yeah. If you could shapeshift into an animal whenever you wanted to, what would you be and how would you use that animal's abilities? Oh my gosh, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, you know, my favorite animal, I I'm a I'm a huge dog lover, but I love elephants. I don't I don't really know what I would do as an elephant that would be in a power for good. I would just hang out with other elephants and enjoy it. I just love them, but um, so in terms of power for good, I'd probably have to ruinate on that a little bit. Um, 
like I've thought about what superhero I'd be. I've never thought about what shape-shifting animal and power for good, Cynthia. So that <laughs> you might have to come back to me at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure. See what emerges then as we... Okay. <laughs> I'll try to meditate on that in the, in the back of my mind. <laughs> Yeah, but I can relate to the the appeal of an elephant, though. That was my mother's favorite animal ever. And um, when we lived in India, we actually came back with a whole collection of hand-carved wooden elephants that were made by the artists in the town that we lived in. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've only been able to see a couple in passing when I was in um, Thailand, but I never got to really spend any time with them, you know, and I think, you know, the memory, the, the social connection, just, I, I just feel like their playfulness, they're just such beautiful animals. And so when I think about animals that I love, it's pretty much dogs and elephants are, are, uh, are at the top of it for me. And I've had, you know, I know you're a huge dog person. Um, I've always had dogs my whole life, but I've never gotten to hang out with elephants. So that sounds really appealing. <laughs> can't can't really have a pet elephant. No, no, certainly not in the San Francisco Bay Area. Like I don't, you know, I don't have enough of a backyard to have chickens. So an elephant's not going to work either, you know. Okay, so what would be your favorite self-care practice? It's a toss-up between two huge extremes, either a really really hard workout or the exact opposite of it, which is like, I love, I try to get away at least a couple times a year with my sisters and we will like rent a house, like an Airbnb and then do absolutely nothing like read, get massages, eat. And that, and, and I'm just like, uh, completely inactive. So I think that the bouncing back between those two extremes, I get to, I try to do hard workouts pretty often. So you know, the, the one that you don't get to do as frequently is, is the more appealing one. So I think a, a little sister time and a weekend of being a sloth is, is high up on my list of favorite self-care things. Well, that makes a lot of sense, especially knowing how on the go and busy and hardworking you are on a day-to-day basis. Having a week to just like drop everything and veg sounds awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think that I feel like most women I know, you know, particularly if you have a young child or young kids, like that's just sort of, you know, that's the phase of our lives, right? Like um, that's the, the, the season that you're in is that everything is just busy and it's crazy all the time. So I try to, I try to be really grateful for it too, you know? my mom and my aunt, you know, I have a very close knit family are kind of like, I know you can't be grateful for every single moment, but you will miss the chaos at some point in time, even though she's like, you know, they're both like, I don't get me wrong. I like being able to like have my own schedule and do what I want to do and not be constantly worrying about shuffling between drop off and pick up and work and trying to take care of myself. But, but the chaos is also really joyful too. So I try to, I try to be really appreciative of that. I don't think I'm special in any way. I think that's just my, my life phase at the moment. So I think that most, you know, everybody who has young kids is like, and it's so funny, isn't it? Like you spend so much time. I know, I know you can, your kid, your kids are grown up, but you can think about it as a mom. You spend so much time being like, 
oh my gosh, I just need, I just want five minutes to myself. I just want a break. And then you take that break and you miss your kids the whole time. <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that irony, right? I'm like, oh, I just need to, I need to get away for a minute. And I spend that time away looking at pictures of him on my phone. <laughs> it's like, you can't win, you know? Yeah, I can very much relate to that that stage of life. And it's true. It goes by so quickly. You know, I'm, my youngest now is 21. Uh-huh. I'm still, I'm fortunate because I'm still very connected with my kids and I talk with them a lot. And my, my younger daughter's living up in Coyoteville with me. For- oh, yay. That's awesome. Yeah. she. Thank God for Katie because she has really helped get through this whole puppy chaos, which is like, that was like having 12 infants all at the same time. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine that many puppies in one like space. That's It's wild. Yeah. Yes. But you know, it's been, it's been really wonderful because I went through the same stuff when they were little, where I just felt like I was totally consumed with being a mother. And like, there wasn't much time and space for me as a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, the one thing that I tried to carve out for myself was time to do martial arts. And I felt guilty that I was carving that time out. And yet I knew I really needed it. And I was really glad that I had it. And, but I was always happy to come back home again. And then when they eventually shared part of that with me, several of them also started training. That was really nice to have that together. And now I look back at all of that stuff as, I mean, those were really sweet times and I I don't miss the struggle part, Mm -hmm. but I'm really grateful for all of the time that we had because of the relationship that we have forged. Yeah. I think that's such a challenging aspect for like, you know, the modern day womanhood means that you know, you have access to opportunity that like, you know, our parents and our, 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 our mothers and our grandmothers didn't have, right. In terms of what you can do for a career and, you know, how, what sort of hobbies that we can engage in. But it also means like time is a finite resource and you have to figure out where, you know, you put everything. And, and so that, pull between being, you know, being a good mom, you know, this, this, this cultural understanding of being a good mom means sacrifice and self-abnegation and putting myself last. Right. I think that's such a, like a, an ingrained, nobody ever said this, says that to you, but it's such an ingrained element of growing up as a woman, right? Like you become a woman when you eat last, right? You, you become a woman when everybody's needs come before yours. And that I think that that as a as a society as a culture we're having to put that in balance and say you know I shouldn't put myself before everybody all the time but like I get to I get to have some space that's mine you know when I first became a mom that was really hard because I've been you know like you you know I I was wanted to stay a martial artist I've been a martial artist pretty much my whole life and you know, but it was just so, it was so difficult because it was like, what time do I take away from my son and my husband to make sure that I'm getting in my training and trying to train with a little one is really challenging. I'm so lucky in that who I work for has always been understanding of my role as a mom and and being really flexible around it. But, you know, there's sometimes you have to make choices. Like, every time, you know, me choosing to go to work is time I'm choosing not to be just focused on my kid. But I think where I had to come to terms with was that, do I want my son to grow up when he, when he grows up 
the second that he becomes a parent say that nothing, none of my dreams are important and nothing I like doing is important. Like, of course I don't want that for him, right? Like I want him to still be able to follow his dreams and focus on what he wants to do and enjoy uh, his passions while being a good parent. So I have to figure out a way to model that so he knows that it's a possibility, you know? And I think that's the the struggle of trying to do it all and be it all and and the blessing of being able to to try to do it all, you know, it's just we just gotta figure out, I guess, in all all aspects of our life how to balance stuff. So it's uh it's a good problem to have. There are too many good things that I can use my time to do. <laughs> so I have to I have to split it appropriately, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's awesome. And I can really relate to everything that you just said and I navigated through that myself. I don't, I wouldn't say I navigated through it extremely well, but it's kind of like a self-defense situation where like, there's no right way to survive. Right. I did navigate through it. And the end result, fortunately, is for happy, healthy young adults who have still a good relationship with me and yeah, well, that sounds that sounds like you navigated it pretty well to me, then, <laughs> right? I mean, so at the time, but you know, here we are now, and it's like, well, we did it. So yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm curious, what to you is a hard workout? You mentioned that was sort of the yeah, like I try to do. So I do a lot. I regularly do um, inclined treadmill sprints where I do varying time domains, and then I'll increase. So as the time as the time domain decreases, I'll increase the speed and the incline. I've had surgery on both of my knees, you know, and I'm and I'm they're 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 pretty they're still pretty good to me. But when I run outside on concrete, I just you know I, I I get a little swollen and it's a little painful. So I try to I try to stick on the treadmill. So in order to to feel like I'm still uh, you know it's different, right? Because when you're on a treadmill, you get to choose the speed. Whereas if you're outside, you can increase or decrease. So you maximize effort. So I try to try to make it really difficult on myself. And I do, I do that. It takes, it's like a, like a 30 minute sprint protocol, you know, around there. Um, and then if I'm doing it for distance, I'll do it on a, at a, at my gym, which I've been, because I'm still teaching zoom classes. Um, so I go in to, to teach my Zoom classes. Um, then I, I have access to the cardio equipment, which I'm really lucky for. And I don't know if you've ever tried an assault runner, but it's terrible. <laughs> so awful. It's like this treadmill that's propelled by you like a like a hamster wheel. Um, so I hate it. And so I so and because I hate it, I I try to use it. <laughs> so I'll I'll hop onto that sometimes um when I'm doing when I'm doing distance running or stuff on um, like if uh, something like some sort of protocol between an assault bike sprint and heavy bag work. That's another thing that I, when I think about, okay, I'm going to do something really hard today. Those are, those are pretty up there for me. And the assault bike is definitely the the devil's tricycle. It's so, it's so, (laughs) it's like, no matter how, how much you work on it, you might just get more efficient. You might be able to to do more work, but it never becomes easy, right? You're never you're never like, oh, okay, no big deal. I'm going to do a salt bike sprints today. It's always like this is so awful, <laughs> but you get addicted to those things, right? Like, um, I actually have been trying to 
you know, during this time period, make sure that I'm doing conscious breathing work and some trying to mix in some workouts that maybe are a little bit more about recovery based because I think when when you've been in I, I don't I'm sure you can relate to this. When you've done martial arts your whole life and there's this like attraction and addiction to feeling like a workout just zapped you, right? All of that sympathetic nervous system, you know, like high intensity work and you sort of get really addicted to that and it's easy to um, get burned out mentally and emotionally. So I have to, and there's all these studies that have gone into, if those are the only type of workouts that you're doing, you never do anything that's parasympathetic and you're always focusing on flight or fright rather than feed and breed, that it's not really good for you emotionally and cognitively. So I've actually been trying to make sure that I don't just do my really hard workouts, which I, which I love but that I, that I try to, again, back to that whole concept of balance, make sure that I'm doing a little bit of yin in there too. And it's hard, right? Cause I look at it and I'm like, oh, I could just knock something out in 30 minutes and, you know, I'll like sweat buckets and have a huge endorphin dump, but you know, we have to take care of ourselves in, in other ways too. So, um, I'm trying to incorporate that as well. I love that you brought that up because that's something that I've realized as I've gotten older. I mean, I'm I'm 57, I'll be 58 in August. And I used to love my CrossFit workouts and the high intensity and just like being a big puddle on the floor when I was done. And I could feel the benefit of that. Like I knew I was doing something that was going to affect my body. And yeah. I'm sore and I knew it was like, yeah, you worked really hard. But you know, I knew I should be doing mobility work and I should be doing yoga and I should be working on my breathing and relaxation and, you know, the flip side to the high intensity. And somehow it just never was really that appealing. And it was really hard to actually feel like that was making a difference. Sure. Really easy to cut. And now I'm realizing that what I need is more like 70% of that and 25 or 30% of the actual high intensity movement type stuff or less. Right, right. And that you ended up getting into all of this because it brought you joy, right? And that there, sometimes you have to do some introspection and make sure you're doing things in a way that brings you joy. I actually had this, it's, it's really funny. I had this um, pretty long conversation with my friend, Jessica Fitzgibbons, you know, she runs our CrossFit program at uh, our, at our gym CSA and she is, she's amazing. And, you know, Jessica has been a national hockey competitor. She was a fighter. Um, she is a, a an elite uh, powerlifting athlete. She was a you know CrossFit competitor regionals. So I mean, she's been an athlete her whole life, and she's totally badass. And you know, we started talking about how you know, like a lot of people in quarantine and uh, the global pandemic, and you know, events in in uh, uh, recent news, the, the uh, murder of George Floyd. It's just everything has been very depressing and it has been very difficult to work out the same way. You know, I found myself 
multiple days I would, I would uh, go and I would teach my zoom class and I go, okay, um, this is one of my rare opportunities I have to be able to do a workout inside the gym. You know, the rest of the time I'm with my son, he's not in, he's not in school. He's not in any like programs. We can't be right now. So I really should take advantage of this, uh, while my husband's home to, to be with him. And, uh, I would stand there on the treadmill for like 10 minutes trying to pep talk myself into doing a workout, <laughs> you know, like, and I, and I haven't had that experience in a really long time. Once I, as an adult, it's been a long time since I had issues with the, you know, discipline or, or motivation or whatever you want to call it. And I would almost feel ill, like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this right now. And, and that negative internal monologue. And, and then, you know, the things we say to ourselves, we would never say to another person, right? I'm totally berating myself for not wanting to work out right then. So I just had to change it up, honestly. Like I had to sit there and be like, okay, you know, not every single workout needs to destroy me. And I can have a little bit of joy and I can give myself space to not be amazing today, you know, but just show up was good, you know? And then once you're in it, you never, you're never sad you started, right? And certainly when you, when you finish, you're never like, I should have just gone home and sat on the couch, right? Right. Um, and, you know, so funny enough, I, I, we had, we started this conversation because I had recently, she always does, she does, she does multiple rides a week. We have a couple of Pelotons at the gym and I took this Peloton and I had tried to ride, but it just, you know, I was like, that's not really my thing, but I had taken, um, a class on the Peloton from one of the uh, Peloton coaches named Cody Rigsby. And he is like just this effervescent, like happy, joyful personality. And as you know, Cynthia, like martial arts is very male dominated and like it's a high testosterone environment. And I definitely never had a coach say something like wig tight, hold your light, you know, like you got this boo, you are, you are 100% that be like, you're, you know what I mean? I just, the, the, the positivity of that conversation, like if you had a bad day, it's okay. You're allowed to cry. I mean, whatever martial arts coach ever told you, did you have a bad day? It's fine to cry. Mm. Never. Like, you know what I mean? It's the opposite of a uh, warrior virtues, right? But it was actually really good. And I, it kind of got me through a rough patch where I didn't really want to train because there was that space to be like, Hey, it's okay. If I'm not like, well, I don't need to be 100% today. I'm here, you know, and maybe I had a bad day. Maybe I'm sad or maybe I have some anxiety about what's going on in the world, but you know, I'm here and I'm alive and I should take some joy in that. And I'm just going to put in some work and it doesn't always have to be, championship level, Instagrammable, amazing. That's a great realization. And it's, it's one that uh, I worked with an incredible coach named Elaine Williams. She was actually a guest on the podcast a couple months ago. Working with her was so eye-opening because what I ended up realizing was like, what my body really wants to do is just to move. And if my focus is I want to do what makes my body feel good and what makes me feel happy. Like you, you mentioned, like I want to do something that brings joy. 
like that's good enough. It doesn't have to be goal oriented, you know, task accomplishment. And so finding the things that just felt fun and happy and nice to do was such a transformation for me. And and what I ended up doing was like, well, I don't actually have to go over to my garage gym and pull out the barbell today. I might just turn on my serious radio and dance around the house for 20 minutes. Absolutely. It's been years since I actually just had fun, put on good music and danced. But it was movement. It got my heart rate up. I was having so much fun. And I just thought that's what that's what I need. And especially now when like the mode is just everybody's stressed. There's so much. We're carrying so much concern and worry and anxiety and you know, doubt and fear. The thought of just trying to put myself into a workout where it's gonna take even more of my inner resources to actually get through the workout. It's just like, no, I mean, I'm consumed right now with just getting through life. I don't want to drain myself even more. And I know that we do have a limit to how much stress and pressure we can put our whole system under. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that if you're not feeding both sides of your, your nervous system and, and taking care of your parasympathetic as well as your sympathetic, that, you know, it makes you more reactive. It makes you more stressed out. And we, we think that like, okay, I'll do the super hard workout and then I'll get it all out of my system and I'll be super happy and great. But you know, if we're not, if we're not careful now, we're not in tune with that. I mean, yeah, we definitely did things in our, in our, in our lives, our ancestors in an ancient way of living would have moments where they would sprint or do something really difficult, but they were also just sort of moving around all day. Right. And they were in like larger communities and they were just up and about and doing stuff and they were, you know, dancing and playing music. And, and I think for me, giving myself a little bit of space to do workouts that weren't necessarily the slay myself workouts and just like have a good time and smile and laugh, it made it so that when I went back to do what my, my, you know, typical training program looks like, it was more fun for me. Like I could bring that sense of joy back into the other stuff. Yeah. Right. Because, because I think like, I, I think it's just a human condition, the way we have to, we have to practice how uh, we talk to ourselves, you know, and it made me realize like, when's the last time I hit pads or a bag and I, and I said, good job to myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't, remember doing that, you know, and it's fun. And it, and, and it, I mean, I tell people to do that. So <laughs> I have to do some introspection there, right? Uh, I talk to people about how to talk to themselves, but I have to practice what I preach, you know, and it doesn't make you an egomaniac and it doesn't make you full of yourself. Tell yourself good job every once in a while, or to say, you know, Hey, that felt great rather than uh, that wasn't good enough, that wasn't yeah, technical or precise enough. You know, there are some personalities that, that, you know, that's what keeps the fire going, but maybe I'm just at a different point in my, in my life and in my emotional development that um, I get a lot more work accomplished if I let myself enjoy it. You know, because I, all movement is a gift, right? I think in these difficult times, it almost feels like 
there's a part of you that goes, oh my gosh, like, you know, I need to carve out this time because I want to be healthy and uh, healthy people are, are harder to kill, whether that's by random violence or a virus. And so that's a, that's an obligation I have is to, is to try to have a healthy body. You know, I can also approach that workout not as a, as a, as a penance that I'm paying and something that I have to do because it's a responsibility, but also as a, as a, as a privilege, you know, that it's a gift for, and I, and I, and I meditate on that pretty frequently. It's a gift for me to be able to use all my limbs to breathe really hard. You know, um, there's somebody that woke up today that couldn't do that or didn't wake up today and couldn't do that. So I don't know if that, if that's our culture or society, we remove joy from, uh, movement and from exercise and from fitness sometimes. And I think that that's, that's a mistake, you know, um, and, and what I like might not be what somebody else likes. Like I love hitting things and picking things up and putting them down. <laughs> you know, I love that kind of training, but if for someone else it's yoga or parkour or salsa dancing, like, like we just are, we were meant to move. Right. And, and that's so cool that you were like, yeah, actually I could, I could dance it out right now. And I still got an amazing workout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a good time for me to ask you what advice you would give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your twenties. Oh my goodness. Um, I would advise them to, first of all, uh, take, I would love them to take a beer own bodyguard or an essentials of personal safety course. I think that what we teach from Blower Tactical Systems in terms of, you know, uh, some of our one-day courses or or the online two-hour courses, it took me many years to be able to get it. And I think maybe like an exposure at that pivotal age, I would have had some better boundaries and I would have been more confident and in listening to my inner voice earlier. And the, the thing that we're talking about is it, it starts off with safety and self-defense. But I think that, you know, as you know, it translates into every other aspect of your life. So, you know, not everyone is going to be a lifelong martial artist. I know this. I have you know, I mentioned earlier, I like to take sister trips. I have three, I have three older sisters and zero of them train, (laughs) but, uh, it was just not their thing, right? It's my thing, but every single one of them has, uh, has taken at least the, the one day self-defense course. So, you know, first of all, I think that as part of my, my personal life mission is, um, to be a good mom, and uh, a good partner, but also to make good humans safer. And uh, so, you know, I think the first check off the box would be that would help fulfill part of my mission. I would love whether they took it with me or with anybody else who who was running them. I think a a, a very solid self defense course that also talked about how to think differently is life changing. And then in terms of other advice. It's so hard to remove, you know, and I'm sure you've had this experience too. You you evolve as a human as you enter different aspects of your life. And I was thinking about the other day how 
how grateful I am to be in my 30s than in my 20s. You know, I'm, a, I'm a much closer to, to 40 now. I'm 37. So I'm a lot closer to, to 40 than I am 30. But man, 37 is so much better than 22. <laughs> like, you know, and I, I guess I would say to you, and, I, and, and the reason why I say that is because 22 is really fun. But I sort of had these expectations that I was supposed to have it all figured out, you know, by the time I was, you know, even in my, my mid to late 20s. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think, I think a lot of times we don't, we don't have a lot of things figured out or we think we have them figured out for a while and then circumstances change. So I would tell um, young women, wherever you're at is fine. You're going to become who you need to be and to not sweat it so hard, you know, and just, uh, just let some things emerge organically rather than feeling guilt that, um, you know, you didn't immediately, uh, finish school and, and become like a human rights lawyer or something and land this. There's this like myth that you're going to, because you could, uh, opportunities available to you and you could be a lot of things that you should immediately become a person who has this like amazing job that changes the world. And every single day you're going to like leap out of bed I mean, I love my job. I love my job. I feel like I'm honestly doing what I was put on earth to do. And I don't always leap out of bed every day. You know what I mean? And I have bad days and good days. And I think we have this myth around what it means to to do something you're passionate about. So it's like, you know, as young women, a lot of times think that they're rudderless or, you know, not fulfilling their destiny. but they're wrong. You know, it's all, it's all part of that, about, of that process. So yeah, I guess the last thing I would say is that it's also, um, it's also okay to put themselves first. You know, I have much better, um, I think I might've mentioned it earlier on the call. I have way better boundaries than I did when I was in my early twenties. It's not that I ever felt like I was a, a doormat or anything, but you know, other people's opinions don't keep me up at night, you know, the, the list of people who could is there certainly are, you know, I care about how other people feel, but I don't know. And I, and if you asked me in my twenties, if I cared what other people thought, I would have been like, no, but you know, you're much more concerned about how other people feel and perceive than I think you do as you grow and mature. And so don't sweat it. If, if you have to be um, rude to someone, and the upside is it makes maybe makes you safer um, and you hurt their feelings, then you should go do that. If certain relationships are not fulfilling you and they're just taking from you and, and uh, someone's an emotional vampire, you should cut them. So all sort of a meandering way to say it's okay to put yourself first, I guess, is the, is the summary. That was a really long one. I hope I, hope I was lucid. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, just so, so many great gems in what you were saying. You know, I, I just, I'm nodding my head up and down and like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. You know, starting with get some education in how to keep yourself safe. Okay. Because when I was in my early 20s, that was when I got robbed at gunpoint after coming to the club and late at night. And it shouldn't have been such a shock to me, but it was because I had no fucking clue that there was danger in the world and I had no idea what I could do to avoid it or to deal with it when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and cause I look back and I'm so fortunate that I 
nothing, you know, catastrophic happened to me, right? Because I was so cavalier about my safety when I was a, as a as a really young woman. And, you know, if everybody in your everybody in your age bracket and in your social group and that you see around is sort of the same, you know, I'd never blame the victim. It's never anybody's fault for to be the the in the target line of a of an asocial predator of a bad guy. But you know, let's, let's control what we can and try to, you know, be vigilant in the face of it. So, so I think that's what, where my mind goes automatically like you, like, man, I'm so lucky I was okay, you know, in my early twenties. Cause now, cause now I, I know how to avoid certain situations a little bit better to, to protect myself. Right. Well, and that, that really is the whole underpinning of the programs that I have now. It's like, these are the, that every one of us should learn growing up and that very few of us actually do. Right. So, yeah, I love that part. And then um, you were talking about basically not applying pressure to yourself, you know, that you should be on this particular path or you should have accomplished X by this age. And I see that in my kids too, you know, this feeling like somehow they're they're doing it wrong or they've taken too many diversions and like somehow they're not in the right place where they should be. And yet actually the wisdom that you brought was like life unfolds and things change and you'll see in hindsight how you actually created that path and you are ending up where you need to be. Uh, It just isn't always what we are led to believe it will be, which is, you know, go to high school, go to college, get qualified, go get a job and start climbing the ladder and building a career. Yeah. And, and that a lot, like, and I think maybe two and three are really connected, like about not worrying about what other people think, because there are plenty of people who there's nothing wrong with that trajectory, but there are plenty of people who follow it and are miserable. <laughs> you know, I mean, so I mean, I, I, I have a degree in English lit and I thought that I was going to end up working for a publishing house or potentially go into academia. And now I teach self-defense for a living. Like that's a pretty rapid shift. And I would never have foreseen that. I graduated college and I was still like kind of in a figure it out phase. And I started working um, cause I live in, you know, the San Francisco Bay area. I just took a job at a tech company and I hated cubicle life. I hated it. I was so miserable. You know, I hated that. I like to wake up in the morning. I did wearing heels to work. I'd go and the sun wouldn't be completely up. And then I would leave and the sun would be down. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I was using any of my talent. And I was just bummed out. And then um, the economy tanked in, in like 2008. And I had been training at the time and I was starting to fight Muay Thai. And so I focused on that. And I ended up teaching to just help out the gym and make a little bit of money while I was trying to um, become a fighter. And I had this epiphany a couple of years and I was like, man, I really love teaching. And I think that I want to do this. I don't, I don't, I'd rather pursue this than fighting. I would never have thought any of those things would have happened. The fighting, the, the, the coaching, any of it, like, you know, cause it, cause to other people, it sounds like a hobby, right? Like, Oh, what do you do? I'm a, I'm a self-defense instructor. I mean, that sounds like, 
you know, like I coach, I coach crafts. Like that's what people hear sometimes. Obviously that's not the case. You and I both know, mm-hmm. um, that's not the situation, but, but that's what people hear, you know? And, and it was, it was difficult for me in my twenties to make that transition because it was like, oh, I was supposed to, you know, I, that wasn't what I was supposed to do, you know? And, and you get to a point where you're like, well, who cares what anybody thinks? Like if it's out, who cares if it sounds like my job is a hobby, like my job, I know the value of my work, right? And I know how it enriches my life and other people's lives. So if somebody doesn't get it, I mean, that's really their problem, you know? And you can't do that if you're constantly telling yourself, you know, here's what I'm supposed to do based upon other people's expectations. Yeah. Oh, I'm really glad that you sort of shared how part of your path has unfolded. And I'd actually like to dig into that a little bit more because it's, it's really cool. So I guess, can you talk a little bit about how you first got into martial arts and then why you followed the path with Krav Maga that you did? So, you know, I actually started with Taekwondo when I was 11. I was pretty like a bit, I was pretty overweight as a child, you know, and my, um, my parents wanted me to have a hobby and we had tried at, by that point, by 11 years old, we had tried a bunch of different things. We had tried dance classes and multiple musical instruments. <laughs> we tried violin, clarinet, piano. They tried swimming and there's nothing took and they didn't want to, you know, to my parents credit very much. They didn't want to force me into an activity and just make me do it. They wanted me to actually care and enjoy it, but we hadn't found that thing yet. Right. And so, you know, increasing concern, I'm not like a super active kid and, you know, academically, you know, I was a, 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 you know, a good student, but I just didn't have, I didn't have a a passion outside of school. So, you know, my mom had seen, you know, some advertisement outside of a Taekwondo school. And she said, you, I want you, I'm going to take you there and you're going to try this out and you're going to try, you know, whatever the, it was like the free trial class or, or whatever. And I, 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 I really didn't want to do it, but, uh, my mom is, five foot nothing and uh she all of the the um toughness of like a normal sized person just compressed into like this little petite filipino lady like she does not play and my mom was like uh, i'm sorry i don't think you understood it's not like i was giving you a choice you're going to take this class you're going to show up and you're going to listen to the person who's talking to you and you're going to do that politely right now, or I'm going to drag you in by your hair. <laughs> so like a super old school. And I was like, well, those are my choices. I guess I'm going to go inside and I'm going to take the free trial class. And I was immediately sold. Like I, it was like the first time I'd thrown a punch in my life. And, you know, I'm the youngest of four girls. All three of my sisters were cheerleaders. And I just didn't, I didn't fit that mold, right? You know, so I was a little, you know, I was a little overweight and I just, you know, I felt like I was the misfit in that. And then the first time I got to like throw a punch and throw a kick, I was like, oh my God, I really, you know, the, the, the angels sing, right? The heavens open up and you're like, oh, this is what I was supposed to do. 
Um, so I did, I did, uh, I did TKD up until I graduated high school. And, um, when I went to college, I was looking for, I wanted to, you know, do something, but I wanted to try something else that was different. I took a little break from martial arts and I played rugby for four years in college. I actually tried crew for a week and I couldn't hit anybody. So I was like, this isn't, this isn't for me. They want to wake me up really early and I don't get to do any contact with other humans. I think this is not a fit. So, um, I didn't, I didn't end up doing crew, but, uh, but I stuck with rugby. And, um, when I, when I graduated college, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for women's uh, non-collegiate rugby. So I was, I was looking for a hobby at the time. Um, and I, and I kind of wanted to go back to martial arts, but I didn't, I didn't want to do traditional martial arts. You know, I felt like I wanted to try something that I, that I wasn't wearing a uniform and I, I wasn't really interested in having to do forms, you know, and, and some of the, the aspects of traditional martial arts that are actually amazing you know, the, the student creed, the discipline, all of that, the hierarchy, which I think was very valuable to me on a, on a developmental formative level. You know, I, I want, I like plan, you know, to, uh, I encourage traditional martial arts, like, especially for young kids to, to experience that. I think it's really healthy. Um, but as a 22 year old woman, or I probably at that time, a by that time, I was like about 23. I wanted something different. And uh, my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband, saw a an episode of this show called Human Weapon. I don't know if you remember it, Cynthia, if you saw it ever. It was like two guys who travel around the world and do the martial art from different countries or cultures. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's not on anymore, but it was a really great show. They would, they would try, you know, they went to Brazilian, did Brazilian jiu-jitsu, all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, my, uh, now husband called me and said, Hey, I found, you know, cause I was trying to look around. I had been, and this is, you know, the internet was around, but you didn't have as many review websites and, and ways to find out about stuff that you do now. And, um, he was like, I found I found the thing and he showed me this episode of human weapon where they went to Israel and they did Krav Maga and you know, the, it was a female instructor that they were exposed to. And I, I, I just, I loved it. I loved her energy. I loved her aggression. I was like, yeah, this is, I think I'm interested in this. I think this is what I want to do. And, um, my first class, I took a Saturday class with, uh, the man who's now, you know, been my, coach for over a decade in both Krav Maga and Muay Thai. He was who introduced me to Coach Blauer, um, Kieran Gibbons. He's the owner of uh, CSA Gym. And um, it was a class with him and he taught me how to, how to properly throw a headbutt. And I was, and it was like the angel sing again, right? Like I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, this is exactly what I wanted is I wanted to know how to headbutt you know, someone who was like trying to hurt me, you know? And so, you know, that, that started me on my path. When I began, I was like, oh, I'm only interested in, in taking, um, self-defense classes. Like I never want to compete in anything, but coach Kirian, you know, I had been training for a while 
had really encouraged me to uh, branch out and to try Muay Thai because he thought that I could compete, you know, so that's kind of Krav Maga brought me to Muay Thai. Um, and I, and I competed in that for, you know, a number of years and then decided that I actually, that coaching was, was meant to be my life's work. So it sort of circled that way. That's really cool. So how long did you compete? Um, so probably had my first fight in like 2007 and I think my last one in like 2000. 11. So around that, around that period of time, you know, um, it was, uh, you know, I was, I was only, I was only an amateur. I never, I never, uh, was a professional competitor around the time that, you know, I started fighting for championship on, on the amateur circuit, you know, really, if you think about it, amateur should sort of be like college, you know, it's like prep for the actual job and then you go for a certain amount of amateur championships before you go pro at least that's in theory a healthy way to go about things there are people who who catapult right into pro and and unfortunately it's not not necessarily good for anybody's uh career or brain cells you know so i competed at that i was competing at that level and you know a couple of things happened i after going to uh world's in with the US team in 2009 it was an amazing experience i wouldn't trade it for anything i was in thailand for 2 weeks at the time and um in the middle of it uh it was thanksgiving and i remembered sitting there and feeling like conflicted you know because i was so happy i was there i felt so grateful to have a spot on that team and to be able to to live this dream and do it, but I was so sad to be missing Thanksgiving with my family. And you know, there was a part of me that went, "How many, how many Thanksgivings do I have with my parents?" You know, because you know, I want to. Of course, I want to think about them living forever and me living forever. But reality is, all of us have a have a finite amount of time on Earth, right? And it just really got me down. And I thought, if I was supposed to be doing this, this is absolutely what I was supposed to be doing. This should be more important than being home on Thanksgiving. And, you know, so that, that was kind of a little, a little bit of doubt in my mind. And, and I think just, um, it brought me to a perspective that every single time I taught a class, I was so happy and so uh, my energy was up and I felt accomplished and I felt happy with my performance. You know, you're all, you're always trying to improve, but I felt like, uh, my, com- my performance had a positive contribution to my community. And I didn't always feel like that with fighting, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting psychology you have to have to fight competitively and you know you think about it and and i mean to a to an outside person who has not done it it's such a crazy thing to do i mean so here you are hey you're gonna train all the time and you are not gonna have too much of a social life except for other people who train all the time and you need to be monk like in and hyper vigilant about every single thing that goes into your mouth 
and you're going to be the fittest that you could ever be and like the most cut up that you could ever look on weigh-in day and you're going to feel the worst you've ever felt and you'll be left with body dysmorphia the rest of the time because when you're hydrated, you don't look like that. And um, you're going to do all of that so you can have like six to 25 minutes in a, an enclosed space, whether that's like a cage or a ring. So you and another person under a certain set of rules can try to kill each other. And then there's this third person who's in there to make sure nobody actually dies. And everybody watching you is someone you love or who wants to see you fail. Why on earth would anybody? Why would you do that? It's so crazy, but but it's the most alive that you can possibly feel compressed into six to 25 minutes, right? It's like, you know, the, 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 the thrill, the, it's the agony and the ecstasy, you know, and it's addictive, but I'm, and I'm so glad I did it. I'm so grateful I did it, but I think, you know, I just got more emotionally out of coaching, you know? So it sounds, it sounds like such a crazy thing to do. And it is a crazy thing to do. And I still, you know, my, my, uh, my gym that I'm a part of that I, that I run the, the self-defense program for, we're most known as uh, a fight gym. You know, we have professional world champions in, in, you know, MMA and in Muay Thai um, and in every major fight organization. So I, so I'm, you know, these guys are my dear friends and I have a, a front seat on the sidelines to that kind of athlete psychology. And, I I don't really I don't really miss <laughs> that life, <laughs> you know. Like coaching, coaching is a um, a lot more consistently enriching, you know. I think that the the, uh, the adrenaline and all of those feelings, like I'm so glad that I had that life experience. I think everybody who even has a mild, tiny, like little candle flame of interest should absolutely do like a, at least a tournament or something just to know what that feels like and you know kick it off their bucket list but living that life is like you know it asks quite a bit of you um and I just hit a place I guess where where I said uh I think this isn't the this isn't the place to channel my talents because I'm not getting that uh return on investment in terms of joy yeah, I what comes out to me is that going through that whole training process, the prep process before going to a fight and then actually having the event, stepping into the ring or the cage whichever it happens to be, like all of that is an incredible test of who you are and what your capacities are. And there is something very gratifying about testing yourself in the most extreme situations that you're willing to test yourself in. You you learn a lot about yourself when you do that. And then it also makes sense to me that after having done that for a while, you know, like, well, I've, I've proven that I can do this. I've, I've proven that I have the courage. I've proven that I have the skills. I've proven that I have the stamina the discipline, the heart. Do I need to keep proving that to myself or to somebody else 
over and over and over again? Or have I reached a point where like, okay, I've, I've done that. Now what do I want to do with my time and my energy and my focus? I mean, that sounds like kind of that's the point that you got to. And it's like, you know, actually I get so much bang for the buck now in, in coaching. That's where I'm really getting my joy. That's where I'm really feeling validated and, and where I'm learning and constantly challenged. So I'd rather do that now. Yeah. And I'm, and, and I'm better, I'm better at coaching than I was at fighting. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think I have, I have uh, friends, you know, and they, because then we'd get inside and that was, that was joy. You know what I mean? It wasn't just the test and the pressure. It was also like, like, you know, do you know, those people, you know, you, you, you enjoy you know enough about about combat sports. You know there are some people who just love it, man. They're in there and they are living their best life, right? Like being in there is joy. And you know, I think for me, like that, there were there were moments that were joyful. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard to even. I, I I'm the type of person like a lot of my fights. I don't totally remember a whole lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The adrenaline was so high. Um, I, I, what happened, you know, um, you know, and I, I, uh, but I, I think I'm a better, I'm a better coach than I was an athlete ever. And that's probably a pretty common story for a lot of people who are coaches, right? Even if you love athletics, it's pretty rare. The individual who is, you know, a, a, a true all-time great in a sport and ends up being like a true all-time great in as a coach. Um, they're sort of different part. There are people who are like that. I know some and, uh, I'm always wowed, but you know, a lot of us, you know, tend to, tend to, um, have the skill level in, in one area, uh, a little more so than the other. Um, and I think I'm definitely a more talented coach than I, than I am uh, an athlete, certainly, you know, and if I, if I got to choose, which one I was going to be great if I was going to be an all-time great at sport or an all-time great at coaching, man, I know, I know what I'd pick. I want to, I want to try to become an all-time great at coaching, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same too, right? Yeah. My experience being around you as a coach is you already are a great coach. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've not seen you in action a whole lot, but what I've seen, like, I just, I really admire you and I, I would love to be more like you. So I think you already are well on the path of being one of those all-time great coaches. I appreciate that. It means a lot, Cynthia. You know, I've got, I, I got blessed with good, sometimes, you know, you think about just being really lucky. Like, I feel like I, I, um, I feel so bad for people who just never got exposed to the people I got exposed to. Right. Like, and, and some of it was very happenstance. And I think, um, you know, I met, I met coach Kirian because he was teaching at a gym that was geographically close to me when I did a Google search. Right. And I showed up having no idea who the instructor was going to be when I took my, you know, first trial class. And I go, I went, oh my gosh, like, this is absolutely it, you know? And if I hadn't um, met Coach Kirian, I probably wouldn't have done any of the other stuff that I got to do. You know, um, I would never have been exposed to the the coaches who have modeled myself after. You know, I would never have like started training Krav Maga and therefore wanting to teach it 
um, and doing my uh, instructor certifications through Crop Balance. Because honestly, I took I took my first instructor certification. I don't want to say on a whim, but but not with the intention that I would like focus on coaching. The idea was, oh, I just want to help out the gym, you know, because we were Coach Kirian was te- had been teaching at someone else's gym you know, around San Jose area, south, uh, south, the southern part of, for those of uh, anyone who's not familiar with the the Bay Area, the southern part of the San Francisco Bay Area, he decided that he was going to open up his own gym and he wanted to be far away from the previous gym he worked at so that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be like he'd be stealing students, right? He opened up uh, in the East Bay, which if you're in the south, if you're in the Bay Area, you're not even close to having the same clientele, right? Yeah. Um, 30 miles is like, you know, you might as well be in a different state. And the gym was opening up and I just wanted to help out. Um, and I took my level one instructor certification, which was, it's an, you know, kind of an introduction to how to teach Krav Maga and then also how to just have an instructor presence and personality and how to convey information succinctly and charismatically. And that was uh, with John Whitman, who's the, the head of Krav Maga Alliance you know, back when he was having to do all the the certifications by himself. And I remember that weekend I came out of that going, oh my God, I really, really like teaching. <laughs> this was so great. I had no idea that I liked doing this. Like, wow, that was so fun. I could do this all day. And I, I didn't know that that was in me and I would never have met John if it wasn't for Coach K. And then, you know, so, you know, then it continued on and I took the rest of my instructor certifications and, you know, eventually uh, was training enough that uh, I was, I was fortunate enough to be chosen to be one of the people who get, got to teach that same cert that drew me into coaching. And then, you know, years later, because I knew Coach Karen and because CSA Gym had grown, I think that's where I first met you, Cynthia, was, was um, when Coach Flower did um when he was still doing the crossfit defense that's right yeah the certifications um so csa was holding one and i think that was 2012 and i knew i knew who coach flower was and he knew what spear system was because you know coach king and he are you know good friends they've known each other for decades and he would share a lot of uh coach b's maxims you know with credit and kind of share, like, especially even, even from a, in Muay Thai, right. But from that perspective of like psychology and mindset. And so I knew, I knew him through osmosis, but I hadn't followed his work at that point. And then he came and he taught a CrossFit defense course um, at the gym, which I was, uh, you know, oh my gosh, you know, he's coming here and I get to take this course. I never would have been exposed to that. So just by happenstance, because I did a Google search in the right city, I met a person who who put me on this like life path trajectory and exposed me to other coaches who completely changed my my outlook and how I taught and how I presented and and just introduced me to coaching period. So, you know, I, I guess for me I feel I feel like I just sort of lucked out, you know? And uh, I want to, I want to say, I want to give people advice um, on how to be great. But in some ways I feel like I just, I just got really lucky. So I guess, 
it would just be seek out great coaches because they'll will be able to model them right and try to try to be a little bit more like them I guess that goes for athletes and and other coaches too yeah and I mean you were lucky and you were ready to say yes to the opportunities that came along right yeah well I'm curious how your understanding of martial arts and self-defense has evolved as you've gone along that path because I imagine it has shifted quite a bit yeah, I mean, so it's so it's such an interesting conundrum being a martial artist and then also teaching self-defense because the terms get convoluted, right? And I feel like it it's a it's like it's like trying to craft a thoughtful Facebook post. You know, you're gonna offend somebody <laughs> like if you say anything. And I want people to feel welcomed and included, but it's like, you know, sometimes I get I, I I remember when I started training like Muay Thai and people would tell me, well, this is like, like truly, well, this is like real self-defense. This is actually how you should actually move. And I was like, I mean, like in what situation um, is someone who is attacking me, like going to square up from this X point and we're both in our fighting stance and then there's a ding, right? Like, I just, that's not usually how it happens. Right. And I'm not saying that like those skills don't make you valuable for anything, but we have to acknowledge like that what we're going to end up doing in certain scenarios aren't always going to play out. So, um, what I think gets missed is that people think that you're, because you're saying in self-defense that a lot of ways that we practice won't necessarily manifest or won't necessarily be that opportunity to hit a round kick, which I love, which is my favorite kick ever, by the way. I love the round kick and I'm, and I like would not change knowing it. And I think knowing it, uh, how to throw it and training it and practicing it makes me a better athlete and makes me move better and therefore makes me safer. But I just, you know, there's not a lot of situations in which that would be the, the first thing I'd throw, right? To protect myself. But there's this confusion that's saying that it's like, it lacks value. Um, and I, and I don't agree with that. Um, I think that being healthy and a good mover and a good athlete and explosive, and if you enjoy it, um, that's good for you. I think that even, uh, training in methodologies that maybe I am going, yeah, I don't necessarily see that exact sequence of events playing out. Um, I think that as long as you're coming in with the appropriate attitude, you know, it can still be valuable, right? Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to paraphrase Coach Flower too much because he says it better than I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's enough um, out there on podcasts and the internet where he's being way more succinct and articulate uh, than I possibly could be. Um, but I wouldn't trade any of my martial art training and say that it's not valuable for self-defense. I think I think what that whole meandering, wandering thing was to say is if I had one hour or 90 minutes to teach somebody self-defense and all I could do um, was talk to them, I would pick talking to them about how to think, about how to feel, about how to manage their emotions, you know, um, that I think that that begins with everything because you can have, you know, all of the martial skills in the world, but 
if your mindset isn't where it needs to be and your attitude and psychology isn't where it needs to be, you won't be able to access that. And I do think that just because you train in martial arts, like there has to be an awareness that, you know, sometimes real fights aren't going to exactly play out the way that we train. And, you know, we have to, we have to have a contingency plan and we have to be adaptable and uh, we got to have an open mind. So um, I think my, my, my mindset has shifted and grown in recent years and that I, I had a realization, I had an epiphany about how much we focus on physical skills and how, how much I was neglecting mental and emotional skills. Yeah, I had that same epiphany and followed it up really with kind of the the corollary, which is that when we do talk about the physical skills and we do work on the physical skills in the martial arts, we're doing sequences of choreography. And then in the real world, it's really unlikely that we're going to be able to pull off a nice choreographed sequence. Right. Yeah, that was the other thing for me was was recognizing that if I could tap into my natural tools, that those would always be there and I could always figure out how to apply them. But if I was trying to use my memorized sequences that I learned as a martial artist, that you know, maybe at some point I might be able to use some of them, but most likely not the same way that I was able to do them in class. Yeah, you know what, you know what really changed my life was training in high gear. Because once I could put on high gear, which for, for any of your listeners who, who might not be familiar, uh, impact reduction suits, um, so you can run uh, scenarios where you're, where you're replicating real life movement, you know, you can actually, the attacker can actually hit back uh, safely, right? And, and, and target. And it's not like a red man suit where the person on the inside can't feel anything you know, because, because that's not realistic either. Right. But there's, it's impact reduction, not elimination. So, so people will start, will move more naturally, but you can get it done safely. Once I started to work scenarios in which I was in high gear and then someone else was in high gear and we're working a a scenario and they could actually make a decision on on how much what I did hurt and if they were going to hit me back or could hit me back. That really changed a lot about how I moved and how I thought about violent encounters, you know, because just training um, a scenario in which an attacker is non-compliant, right? That you deal with maybe what's the initial threat and you hit them and then they hit you again. That changed the dynamic for me, both mentally and physically. You know, I was, I was much more aware and I was floored, I guess, by how not awesome I look. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like how, because real, real fights are so messy. Yes. And, um, and I, and I got to, it was, it was like, wow. Okay. And I think like coming to peace with that, right. That real, that real fights are messy and that you still have an ability to, to deal with that chaos. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a blender of, of humans for a minute. And that was, uh, in one sense, shocking, but also very empowering, right? Because I, I didn't feel so, um, 
so pressured to be, you know, to paraphrase Coach B, I didn't feel so pressured to be technical because I was focusing on being tactical. So um, that was a big game changer for me too. Yes, I I had that same one, and and I also had something similar where I realized that when we do scenarios, like I initially thought that scenarios were pretty much mostly physical. And I hadn't realized how important marrying your verbal skills with your physical skills really was. And then I had some opportunities to to do training where I had no idea what the scenario really was going to be. And I had to figure it out just like you do in the real world. You have to figure out what the hell is going on. You know, can I de-escalate the situation? What do I do? How do I manage this? Oh shit! Like it's actually not going the way I thought it was going to go. Oh my gosh! I'd better go hands on, you know. And then trying to keep my ability to talk. Like I, I've been in some scenarios where I was still verbally interacting with the role player. Mm. That was part of the scenario. And I thought, well, holy cow, like in my martial arts training, we never, ever included the verbal skills at the same time we were using our physical skills. It was once it went physical, it was all physical, right? Well, that's not real either. And can you, can you actually tap into that part of your mind to be able to consciously think through what do you need to say? What do you need to do? Like, do you need to ask a bystander to call 911? You know, do you need to ask for medical help or something while you're restraining somebody? I mean, we never, ever even posited that that would be part of what we needed to learn doing the arts, but doing it with scenario training and especially in high gear was like, oh, total shift in understanding of what actually was possible to learn. Right. And that, you know, the first time you throw a palm strike uh, will probably not look like the 500th time you throw a palm strike. And wouldn't that be the same for practicing how to talk to people, you know? Um, and so if that, if, if both of those things are true, like let's, let's practice both of those, you know, you, you like the, the first time I remembered when I moved you know, out of my parents' house and, you know, I'm living in like a, like a downtown sort of area and I'm like in college. And the the first time I I ever had like a stranger or, you know, a strange man say something like vulgar to me in a cat call, like just totally floored, you know, because that's, that's never happened to you in your life and you've never dealt with that. Like, you know, the first time it happens, you're sort of shocked, right? But, you know, I lived down there for, I don't know, nine years or something. And, you know, by year, by year three, I don't have the same sense of shock and awe and, and, and frozenness. Not that anybody should ever become inured to uh, verbal harassment, but how I dealt with it and how I avoided it and how I was able to uh, confront it or deescalate it completely changed in the first time, right? Yeah. And so if we can take that same concept and we can say, um, okay, if I can, if I can talk to a bad guy and start to think about different ways to make myself safer and and utilize these concepts, then if I practice them, I'm actually going to get better at doing this than if I never practiced. 
right? And so we know we agree, we all agree about that on uh, in terms of athletics. No one will ever say, hey, you shouldn't practice something physical if you want to get better at it. Well, I mean, the same thing applies to how I talk to other humans, right? So uh, it's just kind of an interesting, that was a, that was, it was something that I had always acknowledged. Hey, if you can deescalate, you should deescalate. If you can walk away, you should walk away. But that was like my 20 second wrap up at the end of class. Mm -hmm. Right. And I had just spent 60 minutes of physical. Um, and, and, and I realized like, okay, I can't just, I can't just offer that lip service, right. I have to, I have to strike a balance and make sure that, that I'm offering an opportunity to intelligently allow people to practice. And, and once students start doing it well, it makes a much more vibrant, exciting live class too. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because like the, you know, in the beginning it was like, I would try to have students, um, talk to each other. And if they like anything, if they hadn't practiced it, they were terrible. So, you know, they're listening to them, uh, give me your money. (laughs) So awkward. And it's so unrealistic, you know, um, but they practice it more and then they, it starts to look like, a real live scene, you know, and you don't need an off-Broadway play, but when everybody practices, they get a little bit better. And and then, and then those scenarios start to feel very real. So that was a huge uh, benefit for me. And something that really changed for me over the years is learning how to inject um, some realism into scenarios that I wasn't previously doing. You know, that was, that was a, that was a pretty big shift. Yeah. Well, what are some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about personal safety that people who come to your classes seem to hold? I think that uh, probably the biggest one that I would encounter is that people think they need to be physical specimens or elite athletes in order to be good at protecting themselves. and you know, the data shows otherwise, right? So I think that, you know, with with uh, the appropriate motivation and mindset and psychology, anyone can be a person who can live, be safer and, and, and protect themselves if they had to. You know, of course, it, it, never, it never hurts to be uh, stronger and faster and all of that good stuff, you know, and that's, and as a, as a result, it's just an improvement for your general life. You know, I, I still do plenty of physical in all of, uh, in all of my classes. Um, one, having healthier bodies and healthier minds is, is really important, you know, but I try to, I try to balance it more than I, than I perhaps used to as a younger instructor, where I was just really focused on, on physical, on physical movement. But I think that people think that that uh, they can't be good at it. You know, that, that whole thing, I'm going to, I'm going to get in shape so I can come to the gym. Right. That's, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) You know, we just, we're all, we're all starting. So I think, I think that's probably the biggest misconception that I encounter. And like anything, you know, the best way to do it is just start. Like that's the hardest part is just to get going. Right. Once you're in the workout, once you're inside the class, like those, those are the hardest part. Just, just start, just go. And, uh, you know, I wish more people would just allow themselves to, to be 
a beginner. Yeah, I think that would that would uh, change the dynamic for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, what are some of the must-know concepts or strategies or tools that you think that women need to have in order to not just feel safe, but to actually be safe? I think that if I were uh, going to offer anything, it would be, you know, in what we touched on earlier with negative internal monologue. I think that a lot of us, you know, myself included, like I talked about, are so down on ourselves about what we're capable of. And a lot of women have told themselves like this story that they're no, I'm not an aggressive person. I'm not, you know, I'm not really strong. I wouldn't know what to do if something bad were to happen. I'm not equipped to uh, deal with anything dangerous. Like all of those things are not really true because I think like, you know, what's fiercer in the wild than a mother protecting her young, you know, who, who wants to, what, what bear do you really not want to come upon the woods is the mama bear. Right. And even if you're not a mom, there's something on this primal DNA deep level that makes us protectors and it's inside us. So you know, maybe you haven't been able to connect with that part of yourself yet, but that's, that's dormant. And that's inside every single woman I've ever met. So I think that not allowing your narrative about who you are and what you're capable of this and and a negative narrative prevent you from seeking out more education and skills and training, um, to let you tap into that. Well, that's great. Thank you. That was that was not where I thought you were going to go. And I'm really glad that you went there. That was, that was good. <laughs> oh, thanks, Cynthia. You know, it's just, we, we, we tell ourselves that like, it was socially conditioned towards niceness. Right. And, and maybe it wasn't overt. Right. But the way that, you know, traditionally the second we come out of the womb, like be nice, make sure people like you don't offend anybody. Right. Be popular, be likable. And I think allowing ourselves space and permission to protect ourselves, protect our loved ones, and have a little bit of uh, positivity that we're able to do that, I think is, 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 is really what I just wish for every woman, you know, um, because once you admit that you are capable of it, all you, all you're missing is the information of how to do it. But if you've told yourself this story that it's not in you, it doesn't matter what information you have, right? Mm-hmm. So I think really that's the impediment um, is, is just an acknowledgement of if I have the right information and I know what to do, I can do this. Okay, then you just need to know what to do. That's, that's easy to find, you know? <laughs> They, they, if they found your podcast, they can take a course with you. Most people, yeah, everybody listening to this has access to the internet. You can uh, go to blowerspear.com and, um, you know, listen, download, download a, a, a podcast or cerebral self-defense 
or no fear and start educating yourself about um, appropriate psychology and mindset. And then, you know, once it's allowed, start, you know, come to, come to a uh, one day course to be your own bodyguard, sign up for a program in your area and just get good information. But you can't do any of those things until you acknowledge that if you uh, have access to that information, you're good enough to use it. Right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's really powerful. And you're right that, you know, it really does matter what the story is that you're telling yourself. But if you have that story, that doesn't mean you have to stay wedded to it forever. You can actually change your story. 100%. Yeah. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? You know, I don't know. I don't know if this is the the most compelling analogy, but it was one that had popped up in my head is, you know, when we were talking about how we view ourselves and how other people view us and how we talk to ourselves, you know, um, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, like as a kid, I was pretty overweight, you know, and even into my teen years, even when I was, when I was, um, you know, doing TKD regularly, I was in a, you know, kind of actively competing too in that as well. You know, I did tournaments. I, I, uh, went to junior Olympics but I was still on the heavier end. And I had this story about myself that like, this is just my body and I'm just sort of overweight. And I, there are certain things that I can do and other things that I can't do. You know, it's not body shaming by any means, but I, I just, I never could love my body, you know, and I was always really negative to myself about my own body image. And I was definitely like, like I shamed myself um, for what I look like. I did not love my body until I could love it for what it did rather than what it looked like. And once I rewarded myself emotionally for things I accomplished and tasks I was able to do, oh my gosh, I finally was able, like, I was able to deadlift this weight, or I was able to run this far, or I was able to go like this many rounds in class without stopping, whatever it was, right? Like then I could start to be like, oh, you know, I love this body. This body is a gift. This body does amazing things. I kind of think that's a metaphor for like everything, you know? So who cares how it looks? Like love you for what you're doing. And if you're right now having trouble finding things to love yourself for what you're doing, go find something, you know, whatever that thing is, like volunteering or taking an online class or, uh, you know, coming up with their own podcast. I don't know, you know, do something that you're going to, going to be going to love yourself for, I guess would be my recommendation. Hmm. Yeah. That's deep. Thanks. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully it's coming across as lucid. I felt a little babbly, but it's from the heart. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that it is hard to feel powerful and it's hard to feel courageous if you have a lot of doubts about yourself and you don't really see the value that you hold and that you are. Mm-hmm. So doing what you did, like I loved your story of like the million and one things that your family tried to get you to do before you actually landed in Taekwondo. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It's like, that's how you find things out is just by trying them. and. Right. Not being judgy, judgy about, oh, well, this actually isn't my thing. You know, not saying, oh, you have to stay in it. You can't quit, but just like try stuff. Yeah. 
And, you know, thinking about it, it actually happened to me as an adult too, because when I finished with college, but prior to doing, to doing Krav Maga, I mean, I was trying to find another hobby, right? Like, I think I try, and I was trying to find like another, like physical, a physical hobby to like, you know, relieve some stress and get moving and be healthy. And Cynthia, I tried Bikram yoga, adult dodgeball, adult kickball, rather. I tried like trampoline calisthenics. I mean, I tried all this stuff and it just wasn't taking, you know, until I found Krabaga. So, so there's that thing out there for you, right? Like, and yeah, you're right. People are just so afraid to try stuff and not like it, you know? Yeah. And it takes a little bit of courage to try something that is, you know, potentially outside your comfort zone, but really most things that we try aren't actually going to kill us. You know, we can, we can do them once and see how they are. And, and it's even just the, the fact of trying something that is outside your norm, you know, and stepping a little bit into the unknown. That's how you start to build courage. I think is just by exercising that. And um, yeah, and you're right that when you find something that really clicks for you, that's where you start tapping into something about yourself that is powerful. And it's really just how you then grow that. And I think we're all powerful in different ways. So, right, absolutely. One thing. And then it's sort of just like learning how to navigate through fear translates out of the self-defense realm into pretty much every aspect of life, discovering your own power in one sort of part of your life can then sort of bubble over or flow over into other parts of your life. And you start feeling more powerful there, I think. 100%. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, you, you asked me earlier about, you know, what with my exposure to Coach Flower in the Spirit System has has kind of changed my my attitudes and 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 um, you know the question was in particularly in regards to self defense which you know of course I've I've had a lot of uh, perspective shifts in regards to um, how I think about self defense and how I treat self defense but it's a tough question to answer because you know there's so much about my life that's changed in particularly my relationship to fear you know I'd probably I'd probably have to put that one as my as my number one you know, is, is my relationship with fear and how I think about fear and how I manage fear, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I think about if I had been too afraid to walk in and take like my first class with coach K, what would my life look like right now? Like, what would I, what would I be doing? What would I, you know, what would be my job? Like, how would I, how many people would I have never met and been exposed to and experiences that I wouldn't have had, you know? And uh, if there are parallel universes, there's a Katie that was too afraid to sign up for that class and missed out on this. And I feel terrible for her because <laughs> like, I love my life, you know? I would never have landed on the Born to be a Badass podcast. 100%. <laughs> I would never have been on here and never got to have this really this really great conversation with you. So uh, this um, is so much fun. And I do want, before we wrap it up to give you a chance to share how to contact you. But first I want to circle back around and ask you if you've had any other thoughts on your shapeshifter animal. Oh man, it was, it's still too good. You know, uh, I, I, uh, 
um, generally, um, you know, I love it. Like Cynthia, it's so funny. I love aggressive sports. I love these like high energy, like aggressive endeavors. Like I could never really take to anything that wasn't much of a contact sport, but right now, I don't know. I think the world needs a little bit, a little bit of, uh, of love and joy. What are those animals from Australia that look like they're smiling all the time? Do you know what I'm talking about? They're these little, um, I think that they're from Australia. Um, they're, they're, they're tiny. They, uh, they look, I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to Google it. Uh, a quokka. Oh, a quokka. They're an Australian animal. Google Q U O K K A. I think, I think I would be a quokka and I would just, I would just basically care bear stare the world, bring a little bit of joy. It's the opposite of how I, if any of my students listen to this, they'll be like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard because <laughs> it's not a quokka. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, generally like really high energy and, and, uh, kind of, uh, tough, but yeah, that's what I would be right now. I'd be a quokka and I would just spread the love. Cynthia, because I think I think we're in dire need of it right now. Have you Googled it? You need to Google it. They're so cute. I will and and I will include that in the show notes because I think that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, you have to put a picture of it because people will understand. So as much as I want to be an elephant, right now I'm going full quokka. There we go. Oh, that's perfect. Well, okay, so um, so people can follow up with you because I'm sure there will be some who want to. Can you share the best ways to find you out in the world? Sure. Um, so I'm on Instagram. My handle is Katie Smash Herd, K A T I E S M A S H H U R D. You know, that's probably the easiest way to reach me is by DM on there. But um, you know, I'm also available via uh, email katie.herd at outlook.com. Um, if people want to email me with questions or find out information about courses or anything like that. So those are probably the, the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. Okay. And just for fun, like why the smash between the Katie and the herd? Oh, that was my fight nickname. So, you know, Katie smash, you know, cause I had uh, funny enough, we had some, uh, mic issues earlier and you said that I was sounding a little bit like Hulk. Yeah. Um, yeah, well that was, that was, uh, it was sort of in reference to, to my fight nickname was Katie smash. Cause that was a little bit, my style was like very aggressive and forward and a little, uh, upon occasion, a little brawly. And, you know, I did not win when I competed at world. I actually I was eliminated out of uh, the my initial round by uh, the woman who won gold that year in that bracket. She's amazing, by the way, Charmaine Tweet. Um, we actually had a really awesome scrap, and she's uh, she's a, a world champion now. She's great, but uh, I didn't medal. But what I will say is I did I did win in um, the drinking games versus the New Zealand rugby team that year. So that was also part of Katie Smash. The nickname development was because I because I I took uh, America's honor in the the drinking games with um, the other teams from around the world. So I'm not that woman anymore. That was like 11 years ago, and you know, definitely these days I'm I'm one old fashioned and done. But back then, 
you know, I had the, I had the energy for it. So that's why Katie smash heard. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, Katie, this has been so much fun. I am so glad that we got through some of our technical challenges and did actually manage to record this because I, I have found so much value and, and joy and laughter just in this whole conversation. And I'm sure that our listeners will too. So thank you so much. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me on, Cynthia. And I can't wait until we can see each other on an in-person course. It's coming. Apparently not yeah. summer, but soon enough, I hope. Fingers, fingers crossed and take care of yourself and those puppies and everybody and, uh, and all of your students. Look forward to the next time. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, this has been Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.